You know the point that a couple gets to where they must decide to either break up or get married. That's the point they've reached. How do you know that? I've been watching, listening. He snatched up his drink, downed it. You stay here. I think I'll buy her another beer. I was about to say something about how it didn't seem the most opportune time to hit on her, but he was already out of his seat on his way to the bar. While his back was turned, I used a napkin to lift his small glass, dump the ice and lemon rind into my now empty sea breeze, and deposit the glass into a plastic bag I had brought just for the occasion. Surreptitiously, I placed the bag in my jacket pocket. Bob leaned on the bar, a few stools away from the woman, turned his head toward her once, twice, and then called the bartender over and placed an order. The bartender came back with a J&B on the rocks and a fresh Corona, which the bartender took to the woman. She looked up, surprised, and then turned her head to Bob and nodded. He smiled back. He slid over until he was standing next to her, and he began to speak. I couldn't hear what he was saying. He kept his voice low, but it was having an effect. She was listening and nodding, and at one point she even smiled. The woman was small with brown hair and a pinched face. Bob leaned toward her. His eyes behind his glasses were the eyes of a mesmerist. And slowly, visibly, you could see a connection develop. Her posture eased. Her smile grew. She even laughed at one point, for a moment placing her hand on Bob's arm. Son of a gun, I thought. That bastard was going to get lucky. Bob was going to get lucky. She said something, and he started laughing. He was still laughing when the boyfriend returned. I had said before that the couple was mismatched, and what I had meant was the almost comical size disparity. She was small, slight, mousy. He was big, broad, bullish. Who the hell are you? said the boyfriend to Bob. Bob looked at him without an ounce of fear or worry on his face. He smiled unctuously and reached out a hand. The name's Bob, he said. Get lost. Calm down, Donnie, said the woman. This was the moment when Bob should have backed off, apologized. But that's not what Bob did. What Bob did was take a step forward. If you'll just excuse us for a moment, Donnie, said Bob, emphasizing the name as if it were an insult, Sandy and I were having a rather personal discussion. Sandy and you? Personal? I don't think so. Donald, stop it now, said the woman. This is ridiculous. He just bought me a drink. Shut up and let me deal with this jerk. That's no way to talk to a lady, said Bob cheerfully. In fact, I think it would be better for everyone if you would just go home now and leave us be. Is that what you think? Absolutely, said Bob, a peculiar smile on his face. The man took a step forward. Sandy shouted out, Donald, no! The man cocked his fist. I rose from my seat, ready to do what I could to stop the massacre. Fricasseed Bob, no doubt about it. But then Bob shifted to his left, bent down, and exploded upward, slamming his elbow smack into Donnie's face with a crack that sounded like a line drive to center field. There was a shriek, a holler, and the scrape of a chair skidding away as Donnie collapsed to the floor, hands over his nose, blood leaking through his fingers. Bob reached a hand out to Sandy. She slapped his hand away, dropped down to minister to Donnie, cradled his head in her arms. Sweetie, Donnie, are you all right, Donnie? Sweetie, say something, please.
My nose, moaned the boyfriend. He broke my nose. Bob took it all in impassively. He backed away, winked at me, and left the bar, vanishing before anyone could stop him. Donnie was sitting up now, one hand over his nose, his white shirt splattered with his own blood. Sandy was holding him, hugging him, straightening his hair. One of the old men leaned over. Let me see it, said the man. Donnie removed his hand. His nose was an amorphous blob. It's broke, said the man, his voice high with delight. No doubt about it. The hospital's just down the street. You gotta get that thing fixed. We helped Donnie onto his feet, helped him out the door, and he and his girl, both of her arms around him now in support, walked slowly toward the bright lights of the emergency room. I paid the bill, searched for Bob, then went home. And there he was, waiting in front of my building. He leaned against the wall, his arms were crossed, he seemed to be insufferably pleased with himself. Are you insane? I said to him. I just did Donnie the biggest favor of his life. You aren't interested in Sandy? Please, said Bob. I prefer a little more substance on the bone. So then it was all a setup. Their relationship was in dire straits. It needed some juice. Years from now, when the two of them are celebrating their wedding anniversary with their children all around, they'll think back on the most important day of their lives, the day they recommitted themselves to their future together. The day he fought for her, the day she rushed to his aid. You set him up and then you broke his nose. I try to help, said Bob. But you broke his nose. That, I'm afraid, wasn't part of the plan. Accidents happen, Victor. Remember that. Sometimes even the best of intentions go awry. What gave you the right? We are all fellow travelers. We don't have the right to turn away. So you step in whether they want you to or not. I do my part. You are insane, I said. Like a rabid fox, said Bob. But let me ask you this, Victor. Whom did you help today? He was right. I hadn't done a teacup's worth of good that day, and he was probably right about Donnie and Sandy, too. They had seemed closer, with Donnie holding back the blood from his nose and Sandy wrapping her arms about him, much more the loving couple. Who knew? Maybe Bob was just what they both had needed. But still, I saw the blood leaking between Donnie's fingers. The blood splattered on his fine white shirt, dripping onto the floor. And I couldn't help but wonder if the answer I was looking for, the answer to a killing I was still trying to solve, was there in the blood. I was just then in the middle of the Francois Dubay murder case, and I sensed that Bob was somehow in the middle of it too. That was why I had taken him to the bar, why I had swiped his fingerprints. The Dubay case was the usual type that falls upon a lawyer's desk. A case of murder, of protested innocence, of history and dentistry, and the best of intentions gone all to hell, not to mention the gratuitous sex and the gratuitous violence. Yet for me, it was a case about more than a lone woman dying in a whirlwind of her own blood. It also started me to thinking about the benefits and costs of involving yourself in other people's lives. When are we compelled to help? When does a helping hand turn meddlesome? And when does meddling turn murderous? 
The questions proved to be more than idle. They proved to be a matter of life and death. Mine, for instance. I've started this tale with a story about Bob, but it didn't start with him, no. His role would be crucial, yes, but though he would appear later in the story, he was not there at the very beginning for me. No. For me, it started with a cashier's check in the amount of $500 from another self-centered son of a bitch, François Dubay. Thank you so much for coming, Mr. Carr, said François Dubay in his French accent. Can I call you Victor? Sure, I said. I am so grateful that you came. You sent us a cashier's check for $500 to pay for this meeting, I said. We're not here as a favor. But still, Victor, I feel better already. It is as if hope has returned to my life. I'm just a lawyer, Mr. Dubay. Where I am now, only a lawyer can help. Francois Dubay looked like the scruffy college professor all the girls fall in love with their sophomore year. Maybe that's why I was wary, because he was better looking than me. But, nah, I don't think so, no. I think it was a visceral reaction to his very persona. I could feel the danger in him, the violence. It was in his eyes, pale blue and unaccountable. It was in his scarred hands, clutching each other as if to keep them from lurching angrily about. Something about him put me on guard. You need to know, Victor, continued Francois, that I did not do what they say I did. I loved my wife. I could never have done such a thing, you must believe me. But I didn't believe him, did I?